One of the most romantic things I've ever done, I did in high school. Had a girlfriend at that point that I was super stoked about. And so for Valentine's Day, which fell on a school day, I woke up like at four o'clock in the morning because, and that's not the on part even, that's, that's just the starting. I, I got to school, I got to, not to school, I got to the, the floral shop early because you know on Valentine's Day, you go to the flower shop, I mean, everything's online today, but in those days you had to walk to the flower shop to buy stuff. And so I went there early before anyone else got there. And I wanted to find the biggest, most like absurd, ridiculous flower display that I possibly could. And because I was working at McDonald's at that point, I had a lot of money. And so, and so I found this, this uh, huge rose display. I, I don't remember exactly what it cost, but I know it was more than $100, which in today's day, like that's like a million dollars in today's cash based on inflation. So I, I said, okay, I need it to be delivered to Norwalk High School at lunchtime, which I think is like 12.05 or something like that. And so I said, can you do that? And they said, oh, I think we can arrange for that. And so I made this deal with the guy at the counter and, and then I left. Except I left and I had more to do because in my backpack, I had, I don't know, hundreds of flyers that were made on red and white paper that said, so-and-so, will you be my Valentine? And of course, my name was there. And um, so I went to school early. I went to school early that day. I beat all the zero period kids and I set up flyers all over the, the school, like on, on uh, lockers and doors and on teachers' cars. I just did it everywhere I could possibly could uh, where it would say, will you be my Valentine? And so, of course, when people start trickling in on campus, like I'm, I'm, I'm sure I won the award that year for like coolest boyfriend in the world. Um, but they come in, they see the flyers, and then at lunch, the bell rings, and uh, they, they call her up to the office to pick up her big, super big, awesome display of roses. And I did all that because I knew for a fact, you could not tell me otherwise, that I was going to marry this girl. We were, we were so in love, like better than Beyonce and Jay-Z. We were loving each other in ways that I just, like, this is going to be it. This is it. Fast forward one year, and we had both <laughs> train wrecked our relationship in ways that I don't even want to tell you. But it was awful. Um, our relationship went from being super sweet and romantic to degrading and devolving into something that was even, wasn't even recognizable. Like I said in, in past sermons, it was toxic, terrible, and, and awful for all people involved. Not just her and I, but our friends and our families. It was just bad, 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 bad. Now, 2019, here's what's important for you. There's so much of what I say and what I have said in the past several weeks that come from not only the heart of a pastor, but the heart of a brother who cares for you and doesn't want you to make the same mistakes that I made. So what I need you to understand today as we work through this last sermon uh, on dating and relating is how to get God's help in your relationship, how to get and involve God in the center of everything that you're about to endeavor upon. Last week I said, I don't think you're at the stage and age to start dating for most of you. But for some of you, you might be. It might be time to start dating people. It might be time to start asking people out. You might be at a place in your life where your parents are on board and you're on board and you want to start asking that godly girl out or that godly guy out. Well, what does it look like then to do it right? How do you actually engage the process where you, you minimize, uh, minimize the potential damage and the fallout? Because with any relationship, there's always plenty of opportunity. 
And that's really what this sermon is about. I'm titling it, How to Date Wisely, or How to Avoid Hurting Yourself Like 99% of Other High School Relationships. And that's a bold claim, I know, I know. But I'm hoping, through God's Word, to give you instruction. This is going to summarize and really put a nice bow tie in everything we've talked about in the prior three weeks. So week one, we talked about relationships and roles and God making male and female. Week two, we talked about Ephesians 5 and what that relationship dynamic should look like ultimately. Last week, we talked about slowing the role. Now, this week, we're okay, you're in the role. What should the role look like? How do we date wisely? And for that, we're going to look at a large text, a large text of scripture out of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, what's important to know about this text is that it really doesn't talk about dating. In fact, dating is a cultural idea. Uh, in the time and age where Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, there wasn't such a thing as dating. And so when we talk about dating, you have to understand everything I'm saying doesn't have a chapter and verse to it. Because dating is a cultural concept that we've invented in 21st century America. Actually, it goes back a little further than that. But my point is, everything I'm about to say, we have to translate it. We have to say, okay, this is what the word meant back in that day. How does that apply then today? And so we have our work cut out for us. 2 Corinthians 6 is where we're going to start. And this is what's going to make all the difference for us. 2 Corinthians 6 starts out like this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay, pause, stop right there. Everything else that we're about to read builds off of that foundation, okay? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, you might already kind of get where I'm going with this, but let's just, for the sake of, under, uh, for the sake of example here, understand what that, that wording means. Well, we don't understand that we're not agriculture, but if you remember, a yoke is a, is a crossbeam that sits on the shoulders of two animals. And so you see their head would go between those things, and you'd have the chain that pulls them. kind of looks something like this. Ideally, you have two ox or two donkeys working together, plowing a field and creating a furrow. Well, that's what Paul says. He says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And if you remember, if you're reading through the DBR, there's, the book of Leviticus is really strange for us, isn't it? If you're reading recently, you've understood that some of the things that Leviticus says is like, whoa, that came out of nowhere. What's up with that? <laughs> Physical deformities and, and uh, uh, ritual impurities would make it impossible for someone to draw near to God. And so Paul is looking back to that and saying, okay, remember what God wrote in the, in the Old Testament about what it looks like to, to be pure before God. And one of the things that he alludes to is being unequally yoked with, with, uh, with an unbeliever. And what he's referring to, I'm thinking, is something like Leviticus 19.19. 19. I don't have it on the screen for you, but you can jot it down. Leviticus 19.19. 19. He says, You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. Nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Today's day and age, it's very popular. In fact, I was listening to a podcast recently um, that was saying, yeah, Christians often cherry pick the verses that they like and they get rid of the verses they don't like. And this is one of the verses that they often point to. Do you wear polyester, Christian? <laughs> you know, that's one of the charges because it's mixed fabric, right? You can't wear that according to Old Testament scripture. And if you're going to be a real Christian, you're going to say, I take the Bible literally. Then why do you obey that and not the other stuff? You're so quick to point out you don't like homosexual relationships or this kind of relationship or that kind of thing, but you don't, you don't uh, not wear polyester. How would you respond to that? Well, again, I'm pointing to what Paul is making. The big point here, Paul is pointing to the Old Testament text, and he's saying, I want you to understand that God is making a much larger point than simply the mixed fabric itself. Which, by the way, because Christ has come, we are faithfully interpreting God's word to understand that Christ fulfilled the Old Testament covenant. Law is broken up into three different categories, civil, ceremonial, and moral. So when we look at the Old Testament and we look at verses like this, or specifically verses that are found in Leviticus that say don't mix fabric, we have to fit it in the category of civil, ceremonial, or moral. The moral laws remain throughout all time and ages. Don't lie. 
Don't commit adultery. But civil laws, that is like laws of the land, uh, you know, you don't, uh, or, or ceremonial laws, like laws that, like don't mix the seed or don't, don't mix fabric. Those two categories of law are done away with. Moral laws remain. When someone says to you, you're being, you're cherry picking verses and you're only picking the verses that you want to listen to and not the others, you need to understand that major distinction. Christ came to fulfill the law, fulfilling the law and the civil and ceremonial moral laws we still can, we still complete, which is where this fits. Paul's drawing the line. He's saying, look at the Old Testament. Do not be unequally yoked. It was not meant just to be a civil ceremonial law, but it has a moral undertone, a moral pinning to it. And what he's saying here is that God ultimately doesn't care about uh, animals breeding or clothes being blended. He's making a point about distinctiveness, about looking different than the culture all around you. And specifically, yoking, okay, the word yoke, putting together unbelievers and believers. The big point he's making here and he's driving at is that it's not appropriate to have super close relationships, especially spiritually, between believers and unbelievers. Is he saying that you shouldn't talk to them, that you shouldn't have friends with? No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying close relationships between these two people are inappropriate. And in fact, he goes through a list of five different questions, rhetorical questions. Take a look here. Five different rhetorical questions. One, why is this inappropriate? For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Two, what fellowship has light with darkness? You can't have light and darkness in the same place at the same time, he's saying. So you, you can't have Christian and non-Christian uniting in ways that are deep and meaningful. Three, what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is a word that comes from the Old Testament uh, that sometimes is translated as belier. The word means worthless. And so it used to refer to someone who was morally worthless. Now, it doesn't sound like a nice phrase. I get that. But what, what's being said here is Christ with the devil. The most worthless one, the one who is most lawless, is the devil himself. So belial refers to the devil. Four, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And, and think about this. This is, this is a hard one to, to wrap your mind around, but this is an important one. As a Christian, if you're a Christian, your portion with God forever and for always will be heaven. Okay? What portion does an unbeliever have? Okay? You get, you get my point here, right? The portion of an unbeliever is God's righteous indignation and his wrath. The portion, the inheritance of an unbeliever is to be eternally, consciously tormented by God in his wrath against their sin. So he's saying, how can those two things work together? How does that make sense for you to have those kind of close and intense partnerships with him? Number five, the last one, what agreement has the temple of God, and he's going to use that in a minute, with idols? How do those two things work together? So he's saying, if you have a Christian church, and let's, let's just call it a Mormon church, how do those two things work together? Some of you might not even know the difference between the two, but there is a difference. Uh, let's just use Christian church and the Satanist church. How can those two things work together, he's saying. Now, Paul in this text, he's not, again, he's not talking about marriage. He's not talking about dating. But his primary driving point is Corinthian church. How is it possible that you guys could be yoking together, getting really, really close, and doing spiritual things with unbelievers? This doesn't make sense. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, he's saying that in a religious context, okay? So close relationships, religiously. Now, let's fast forward to 2019 here and understand what this means for us today, today in this age. If that's true for unbelievers and believers in the first century, how does that look for us in today, the 21st century? Well, let me tell you. Right now, and perhaps even in this very moment, you're, you could be potentially attracted to an unbelieving person or a nominal Christian, someone who says that they're a Christian on the outside, but on the inside, maybe they're living a different life entirely. Maybe they're hypocrites. 
The challenge for you today, young person, is if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have to draw some very strong lines between the relationships that you indulge in and the relationships you don't indulge in. For instance, if you're going to start dating, my first point, and I think the easy point that Paul is making here, is that you should date a Christian, a fellow believer, someone who honors the name of Christ, someone who truly loves the Savior. Otherwise, otherwise, what you're doing is you're putting yourself in a compromising situation. See, this isn't, about, this isn't about, hey, don't date black people, okay? I know the Bible has been used in the past to, to do things like that. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Scripture's saying. The Bible's not just being arbitrary, like, well, you can date people with, you know, a certain height or a certain weight. The Bible's not doing that. This is not Montagues and Capulets. This is not about race. This is about none of that. This is about the spiritual destiny of those who are Christians and those who are not. And the Bible is saying it makes no sense when you forge close partnerships with someone who is the opposite from you. He's saying, remember the five categories you went through? They're mutually exclusive. You can't have hot, cold. You can't have light, dark, okay? You have to have one or the other. You're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. And what Paul's saying is God wants you as a Christian to unite with other Christians, especially in the closest human relationship you will ever have in this life. Save your parents. Dating is ultimately meant to lead you to, God willing, marriage. And if you're saying, I want to get close to you and you're dating an unbeliever, how's that ultimately going to help you or them? How's it going to help them? In fact, the, the analogy Paul uses is, okay, being unequally yoked. So let's say that you, you're an ox and the other person's a donkey. How does it make sense for an ox and a donkey to work together? In fact, if you put them, if you yoke the two of them, they can't even furrow a straight line. They can't go straight together because there's different sizes, different strides, different strength, different temperaments. It's more like, I guess in this case, it's more like you have two different, very different animals entirely. It's not just that the other person's lying down, but one, well, one person is a camel and another person's entirely different species, a donkey. Well, well, Pastor Rod, you don't know this person. He says he's a Christian. She says she's a Christian. Well, do they go to church? Well, you know, sometimes. And they read their Bible. Well, you know, when they can, they're not busy. Do they pray? Well, I think they pray before their meals. Okay, I'm going to start stepping on toes here. You ready? If you're a Christian, you want to date someone that you know is a Christian. There's such a thing as, we call it a nominal Christian, someone who's Christian in name only. They say, you know, they, 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 they say that they're a duck, but they don't walk like a duck. They don't talk like a duck, and therefore they're probably not a duck, even if they say it. It's like, oh, I really, really am a, I really am a camel. But if you look closely, <laughs> that's not quite a camel. It's, a, it's something else entirely. And the same thing is true when it comes to Christians, young people. I know we get a bad rap for this. Our church tends to, to not be the, the most friendly when we talk about things like this. But there is such a thing as true and false conversion. A true Christian loves God. A true Christian wants to read their Bible. A true Christian wants to pray. A true Christian attends church. A, tu- a true Christian evangelizes the lost. And a true Christian, let me just say this clearly, loves people. Love people enough to tell them the truth. And so when it comes to situations like this, you need to understand that someone might say, hey, I'm a believer, I follow Christ, but I want you to be specially attentive to how they live their lives. Do they look like a Christian? Do they sound like a Christian? As my pastor likes to say, run with the runners. Don't let yourself be tempted to, to, to date someone who isn't a Christian or simply just says, I am a Christian. And they're, they're not living like that. And I think if you've been at this church long enough, you would know, according to the Bible, what a Christian looks like. Well, you might say to yourself, 
Well, but why? <laughs> I, I like him. I really like her. She's beautiful. He's attractive. He's the varsity quarterback. She's, you know, the captain of the cheer squad or the captain of the chess club or whatever. Whatever floats your boat. She's that and he's that. And in fact, she's way cooler and way nicer than most of the girls in my youth group. She's, even, she's, she's a better person than most of the girls in my youth group. He is a sweeter guy than most of the guys in my youth group. The guys in my youth group are so immature and you know, they're only just playing Minecraft all day. And this guy, he's reading Shakespeare and smart things. He really floats my boat. Well, why? Why should we obey God and, and date Christians and, and do what he calls us to do? Well, the first one should be quite simple and easy. God commands it. God wants you to do what he calls you to do. And if God is God and you're not, then we have no opportunity to say, well, I don't want to do that, God. I don't like that. I don't like that you made the rules this way versus that way. I wish you did it differently. We can't say that to God because God's God and we're not. I don't want to be heavy-handed about this, but it's important that you understand that God is the authority in our lives. And in our next series, we're going to talk all about authority and what that's supposed to look like. Today's day and age, I get it. Authority is not something you automatically say, you're right, I'm wrong. It's, well, prove to me that you're right and show me how I'm wrong. And then, I'll, and then perhaps I'll, I'll believe you. But God has demonstrated his truth, his authority, and his righteousness through the creation and through his word. And I would ask you to be wise enough to respect that and to follow God's command about who you should and should not date. In Isaiah chapter 6, we don't have time to, to go through it, but Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah pronounces woes against his people. But then in chapter 6, God gives him a vision of himself. And then Isaiah pronounces a woe against who? Himself. He says, woe is me. I'm condemned. Before God, I'm unrighteous. I'm unholy. I'm unworthy. And Isaiah, realizing his plight, is then suddenly blessed by God. God takes a, a coal from the altar and then touches his lips and makes him clean. And Isaiah suddenly says, thank you. Now what? And God says, who's going to go first? He says, send me. I'll go. I want to go. When we understand who God is and who we are, suddenly the argument doesn't become so powerful. It's not about, well, God, I think my way is better. You know, I don't trust you anymore. It's God, you're in control and I'm not. Have you ever gotten to that place? Have you ever been confronted with your sin and been and understood that before God, you stand condemned, and then seeing the beauty of the gospel shine into the darkness of your soul, saying, I'm willing to save you and redeem you from my glory, not because of your goodness or your good-lookingness or your intellect, but because of who I am. When you understand the gospel that way, then suddenly obeying God's commands is a no-brainer. not saying it's easy by any stretch, but I'm saying it's obvious. But why? Because God commands it. God commands it. And as I mentioned before, you're also different. You're different. Uh, and the, the most true thing about you, if you're a Christian, the most true thing about you should be that you are God's. You belong to Christ. The truest thing about you, if I were to say, hey, what is the, who are you? It's not, I'm black, I'm Mexican, I'm tall, I'm short, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a this club person, I'm a that club person. It's, I'm a Christian. I belong to Christ. If you're a Christian, the truest thing about you is that God has saved you and redeemed you for himself and now has called you to live according to his will and not yours. That's what's the most true thing about you. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Ephesians chapter 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You used to be that way. You used to live in, the, used to live in rebellion against God. But now you're no longer in the darkness. You're in the light. Which means something transformative about your life, young person. If you care a little bit about who God is, it means you're going to be willing to say, I don't want to live in the way that I used to live anymore. I don't want to be reminded about my sin because I hate my sin because it crucified my Savior. 
You're different. Embrace the difference. Don't look down upon that. Recognize that you're now called to live a different life than everyone else around you. Most of the people at your schools. And be okay with that. God was not ashamed to call you his son and daughter. Don't be ashamed to call him your Lord. Be different and be okay with that. Understand also that it's good for you. God is not telling you to do something that's ultimately going to hurt you. You understand. I mean, you respect your parents for this, don't you? Your parents tell you to what? Eat your vegetables. They still probably tell you that, some of you guys. Eat your vegetables. Why? Because it's good for you. Make your bed. Clean your room. Uh, whatever else they tell you. Every, every time your parents speak into your... Not every time, perhaps. Most of the time, they're telling you things that are for your good. God is no different than that, except the beauty, is it, of, the, the beauty of this is God is perfect. When God tells you to do something, it's not because he's looking to make a, a damper on your life. God is telling you what is good for you, what will grow you, what will bless you, what will cause you to experience the most joy you possibly can in this life in the purest way possible. He's not trying to be a cosmic killjoy. And think of this, too. If you're dating a non-believer, if you're dating a non-believer, someone who doesn't confess that Christ is Lord, how is that going to help your Christian walk? If that's the most important thing about you, and it should be, how is that going to help your Christian walk? But then think about having a believer as a boyfriend or girlfriend, dating someone who genuinely cares about God and thus your soul. How much more can you get done for the glory of God? How much more effective will you be if you're, if you're praying for each other, you're, you're helping each other run the Christian life? Ask any of the married people in this room who have a Christian spouse. Tell me about how awesome it is to be married to a Christian. Tell me about why it's a good thing to be married to a Christian. Ask Levi. Levi just got married to a Christian gal. Tell, ask him, ask Kiana what it's like to be married to a Christian guy. And you're going to find out that there are blessings upon blessings that you haven't even conceived about because there's goodness and joy in being married to a Christian. It's good for you. And here's a tough one, okay? I need you to hear this last one. Not only is it good for you, but it is incredibly loving toward unbelievers if you choose to draw a line and say, I, I can't date you. That's going to hurt them, especially if someone's interested in you and you're a lot of good-looking, smart, young people in here. And I'm sure someday someone's going to come knocking at your door and say, hey, I'd love to take you out on a date. If you're a gal or guy, maybe some girl is really dropping hints that she wants you to ask her out. And you're going to be a godly young person and say, I'm, I'm so grateful, I'm, I'm flattered, but I, I, I can't. And here's why. Let me tell you what happens if you don't do this. You say, great, let's go out on a date. Let's go hang out together. You guys go to the movies and share some popcorn and do all the things that dating couples do. And here's what you're communicating to them. My Christianity doesn't matter that much. And your soul isn't that big a deal to me. Because in dating you, I am going against what my God wants me to do. And I'm minimizing the reality that you're going to hell. I'm making it better for you because I don't want you to feel bad about yourself and I don't want you to feel bad about me and think I'm a jerk. I'm going to date you and minimize the reality that you're on your way to hell. I mean, if you believe what the Bible teaches, anyway. Conversely, even though it's going to hurt them to hear it from you, you saying, I care about you more than you even know, not romantically, but I care about you more than you even know, so I can't date you because I care about you. And let me tell you what matters to me most that you know the God that I serve. That is one of the most loving things you could possibly do. That's why. In short form, why? Let's continue on. Paul continues to draw his, his, his point. Again, the first verse of, the, of this text here. Uh, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's the starting place. He's now developing his argument. And here's what he says. This is important for us to catch. And as I told you, he, he, he's going to repeat himself. He says, we are, 
We as a church are the temple of the living God, and that is a massive reality. We are now the temple of the living God, as God said. And now he's going to quote several Old Testament texts. He's going to put them together. He's quoting the Bible, in the Bible, and he says, here's the reason why. I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, so follow along here. The massive statement in this text is that we are the temple of God. Think about, if you're reading through Leviticus right now in the DDR, think about what it looked like to, to be pure for the tabernacle, not the temple. <clears throat> tabernacle is the tent, remember? It's the mobile temple. The temple is the actual physical building that God's people built. But in the, in the book of Leviticus, the, the people were, were kind of a, they were a mobile people. They were nomads. And so they had a physical building that was made of a tent. This is referring to the temple of God's kingdom, God's people rather, uh, the, physical, the physical building. But in either case, to get into that building, to be part of that building, think about that. You had to be physically pure. You had to be ceremonially pure. You had to have the blood sprinkled upon you. You had to be set apart for God's work in the tabernacle. And now God says, in a change and a complete change of things, he says, now you, we, the church is now the temple of God. The holy of holies, the most sacred place of Israel's worship is now in us. Bizarre, mind-blowing. I don't think, I mean, I, I, I was looking at the door. I didn't see anyone sacrifice a cow to get in here. I didn't see anyone do that. I didn't see anyone sprinkle blood on, uh, blood on their forehead. But in the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, that's what they used to do. And they say, now, today, we are the temple of God. We now bear the manifestation of God in and among us. And he says, because of that, he says, as God has said, and what Paul is doing here is quoting the Old Testament covenant about what God was going to do in the New Covenant people. God was going to make his dwelling among us, to, to be our God, that we would be his people. And it says, therefore, and by the way, these are all imperatives. Therefore, go out, be separate, touch no unclean thing. Those are all imperatives. As a result of God's close and special relationship with you, the command is now, don't act like the world. You've been redeemed. You've been separated from everybody else. Don't act like the world acts. We have a special relationship with God. Okay, now we have to take this and translate it to our dating lives. What does this imply about our dating lives? If God has separated you, if you're a Christian, God has separated you from eternity past to be his own person, his son or his daughter. When it comes to your dating then, at the very least, here's what it implies. Second point is that you're going to date differently than everyone else around you. It's not going to be the same for you. You're not going to be walking the same walk that they walk. You're not going to be watching the same movies. You're not going to be doing the same activities. You're not going to be staying out at the same hours. You're going to look dramatically differently from everyone else around you who goes and dates at, at, at your high school. Be different. Be a little weird in a godly way. I think of weird and different. I think of Pennsylvania. I went to Pennsylvania several years ago, and I got up close and personal with a group of people that forever will, will be burned in my mind. It's the Amish. You ever seen the Amish in, in real life? Bizarre. Like, I mean, bizarre in a cool way. It's fascinating to see them live their lives. And I, I, they're kind of, they're seclusive, you know, they're not really out and about in the community per se, but you, know, you pass by their massive farms and you see their, uh, you see the way that they live their lives. It's, it's, it's interesting. You see the, the, the clothes that they wear. Um, there's the, they all wear the same style of clothing, the same color clothing. It's very different in how they live their lives. And they're okay with that. Uh, when, when, when Kristen and I went, 
Um, we took pictures, although we couldn't get a picture of them. I'm sure if you went today, people, everyone has a smartphone, and so I'm sure people are snapping photos of them all the time. And I'm willing to bet if they're anything like they were when we were around, they're not really paying any attention to you or me. They're not focused on the fact that you're, you're, you're thinking that they're strange or weird because they're oddities, and they know that they're oddities, and they embrace that. We ought to take a page from their playbook and embrace the fact that we are to be set apart. We are God's chosen people. And that means when it comes to our dating lives, we're going to date very differently than everyone else around us, which means then we should date them like this at the very least. And we've talked about this over and over again ad infinitum, but I'm going to say it one more time. That means you're going to resolve to be sexually pure with your SO, whoever that person is. I won't repeat a lot of what I said before, but I will say this. When you're texting or sending messages or Marco Poloing or anything else, anything, any media that you're exchanging, I want you to pretend for a moment that everything that you send is going to be read by her dad, her mom, her grandma, and maybe her pastor. And the same thing is true with you, ladies. I, I, man, I, I keep seeing the statistics, and I just hope it's not true about you. Be foolish of me to think otherwise, but the, the sexting craze, I know, I don't understand why you, why you would do that, or I, I know why you would do it. Let me say that. I know why you would do it, but I don't understand that you do it. Everything you send over your phone is never going away. You know that, right? You know it. It's never going away. Even if it disappears on the servers, Snapchat's admitted, your, your photos that you send exist on their servers. And if the FBI needed to look into a criminal investigation, they can look up your information and de-encrypt it and share it with them if they needed to. So even though it disappears on your phones, so to speak, it's still there. And the internet doesn't forget. If, if God allows the world to keep spinning for another hundred years, your adolescent life will be available for your grandkids to watch and look and say, what were you thinking? Why were you wearing that? <laughs> what were you doing? People's lives have been destroyed by, by the things that they, they, they exchange over photos. I'm sure that you know of some girls in your schools who have sent photos to her SO, and he, when they broke up, he sends it to everyone else because he was mad. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Resolve to be sexually pure, and that means don't exchange nudes. Don't, 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 be, don't ask for those things. Don't give yourself over to the temptation that's going to come with that. I understand. It's a pull, and it's a draw because, hey, it's, I like him. He likes me. We're super close. He's never going to betray me. We're best friends. There's nothing that's ever going to break us up. Don't be like high school Rod, who thought everything was rosy-posy and was going to be awesome, only to find out a year later that it was ruined. Resolve to be sexually pure which means at the very least, you're not going to be doing things that other people are doing. You're not going to be spending a copious amount of time alone in a car with somebody of the opposite sex. You're not going to be in their room hanging out and cuddling up. You're not going to be hanging out at night a lot together. And I know some of your parents wouldn't even dream of letting you do that, but if your parents are okay with you going out and doing things, please be wise enough to understand that you would violate your covenant with God and your covenant with your parents and your covenant with this girl or guy by, by allowing yourself to enter into that territory. And I'm of the opinion, once a train leaves a station, it rarely comes back, if ever. That is, if you're already participating in a relationship like this, it, it, I want to say it's over for you, but it's not a good sign. Being holy in our relationships means that we're resolving to be sexually pure. Always remember, you're one dumb decision away from ruining your life. Moments. It takes seconds to do that.
It also means if you're going to date well, Paul says that we are his people, that we belong to God, that we are God's children, we're God's chosen people. At the very least, what that means is that when you're dating someone, you're going to honor them. You're going to honor the girl. You're going to honor the guy. You're not going to think about them in the wrong way. You're not going to fill their head with lies. You're not going to, guys, we talked about this last week, you're not going to seduce the girl by saying things like, hey, all the things that I know that your parents don't, they don't love you like I do, nowhere like I do which is an actual lyric from a song. Some of you guys probably know that song. All the things that I know that your parents don't, they don't care like I do. I mean, that, that foolishness and that, those kinds of lies, that doesn't honor the person. That lies to them and makes them think, well, I'm going to be with you forever. Your parents, yeah, they don't love you. I care about you. They don't love you. They make you go to church every Sunday. <sighs> those jerks, ignorant, bigoted fools. Stay with me. I love you more than they do. And that's the problem is that so often we're, we're willing to embrace the lies that, that come up in our culture and we repeat them without even thinking about them. So if you're going to date, date in a way that shows honor for the person that you're with. The young ladies that you're, that you're dating young men, don't, don't dishonor them by taking photos of them that are inappropriate. Don't screenshot photos that you're like, oh, I can think about that photo later. Ladies, don't give guys ammunition. I'm not blaming you for their sin, but don't make it easy for a guy to stumble over your body. You have to understand, girls, that guys are very visually oriented, and you are their target. More often than not, even godly guys are going to struggle with that. Don't let them have the ammunition. Guard yourself and guard them. That's what it means to honor the other person. Honor one another. And that does mean honoring their body, but honor their heart. Protect and guard them from thinking about you in ways that are inappropriate or too fast, too soon. To go back to last week's sermon, honor one another. You'll stand out so much from the crowd by just doing that one thing protecting one another. That alone would, would make you distinct from the rest of the culture. Not only that, but when it comes to dating one another, when Paul is talking about, he says here about, about the church, go out, from the, uh, go out from the midst. The church should go out from the midst of the world. Be separate from the world, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing in the world. Then I will welcome you. Paul is highlighting the beauty of the church. She is to be holy, pure, and set apart. If you're a Christian, you are part of the church and your job is to esteem the church highly. To not put the church in second place to your relationship, which is so often the case. You get all caught up with him. You get all caught up with her. You start dating each other all the time. You're spending all this time together alone. And then you stop doing things like, oh, we should go to church. Well, let's stay out late for WOFO. Let's, you know, go out to four in the morning. And if we miss, we miss. It's going to be on live stream anyway. Honor and esteem the church. That's what a godly couple would do. That's what a holy person would do. And the church is something that is more than just a, it's, this is not, the church is not the building, you understand. It's not just the, the lights and the, the screens. The church is the people of God, where the word of God is taught. A lot of people have the wrong idea about the church. And that's why I can't wait for our boss series, because we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But let me just give you a taste of what, I, what I'm catching on to here. There was a celebrity who wrote something, or it was on a TV show, and he was talking about his church being a good church and uh, somebody, this gal, Ellen Page, wrote back and said, hey, if you're a famous actor and you belong to an organization that hates a certain group of people, which of course refers to LGBTQ, um, don't be surprised if someone simply wonders why it's not addressed. And so she was chiding him saying, if you're going to say you belong to a church, you're a famous person, talk about whether or not your church accepts and, and, and agrees with the homosexual lifestyle or the LGBTQ lifestyle. Being anti-LGBTQ anti is wrong. There aren't two sides. The damage it causes is severe, full stop. Sending love to all. <laughs> Except for those of you guys who are anti-LGBTQ. <sighs> okay. Here's why I bring that up. 
His response to this is helpful. In fact, I'm going to have you respond to this in your small groups. So I'm not going to respond to this. I'm going to have you respond to this in your small groups. But his response was helpful because it, it highlighted something for me that I'm like, that's where everyone's mind is. And that's a wrong thought. I don't know this guy. Um, I, I, I haven't seen his movies really. Maybe, maybe one or two. But anyway, here's what he says. I don't know if he's a Christian. I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at him. I'm not throwing rocks from a glass house. But here's what he said that I disagree with fundamentally. He said, my faith is important to me, but no church defines me or my life. He goes on to say, and I'm not a spokesman for any church or any group of people. My values define who I am. We need less hate in this world, not more. I'm a man who believes that everyone is entitled to love who they want, free from the judgment of their fellow man. Okay, so that last part, it sounds like he's saying I, we're, we're on board with that. We're on board with the, the LGBTQ lifestyle. But the part that I'm most concerned with is the part that's highlighted and bold. No church defines me or my life. It's not a Christian thought. It's not a Christian thought. If you call yourself a Christian, the church is God's institution, not man's. And so the church does define your life because it is God's church. It's not Pastor Mike's church. It's not Pastor Rod's church. It's not the pastors of Compass's church. This is God's church. This is Jesus' bride. Last week we talked about Ephesians 5 where Jesus said you're to act in ways that highlight Jesus' relationship to the church, i.e., we are the church. We are God's bride. We're Jesus' bride. I know that's weird for bros. We are Jesus' bride, though. We're Jesus' bride. Girls, you're God's sons. I know it's weird for all of us, but we're all equally offended. We are God's bride. We're Jesus' bride. The church, together, collectively, we are Jesus' bride. Which means when we, when we counter things like this, that, that can be our response. The church does define me, for better and for worse. Is the church perfect? No. <laughs> no. No church is. But that doesn't mean that we can't ally ourselves with God and say, yeah, this, this is, these are my people. When a Christian says something dumb on, on camera or anywhere across the world, I sigh, I lament, but I'm like, that's my people, for better and for worse. The church does define us, which means when it comes to your relationships, the church ought to be central to them, not peripheral, not on the outskirts of your relationship. It's, the church is part of your relationship. It should be in, with, and through it. Dating them, resolving to be sexually pure, honoring one another, esteeming the church highly, and sorry to bring this last one up, but it's important. Resolve to break up amicably. That's a hard one. But statistically speaking, as we said last week, if you're going to date, you're likely to break up. You're not going to be, for most of you, there's actually a couple in the room who are high school sweethearts. Actually, one couple's gone here this weekend, but there are high school sweethearts in the room who made the distance. But the likelihood is about as close, it's about in the same ballpark as you winning the lottery, which is to say you're probably not going to do it. So, um, breaking up then is something we need to talk about. First and foremost, please, 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 please don't blame it on God. Don't say, God told me to break up with you. <laughs> I asked for a sign. There wasn't a sign. The sign said break up. I'm going to break up with you. Don't blame God for your breaking up. Be honest, but don't blame God for it. If you're having convictions and you feel like it's wrong, then be, own that. Don't tell, don't tell them, God told me to break up with you. Also, don't text, <laughs> don't text the breakup. Don't DM the breakup. Don't put it on your story and say, hey, we're breaking up and tagging them. Don't tweet at them. Don't, don't do any of it. That's so, yeah, I know it sounds silly to say it, but I, I need you to hear it. Don't do it that way. That's not honoring them. Don't do it that way. Also, and this is a big one. I've seen this one before. When, when you break up, don't leave the church. Don't leave the church. I know it's hard. You're going to see him there and he's going to be 
you know, moving on with his life and you're, you're going to see her there and she's moving on with her life. Maybe she's getting close to this other guy and it's like, oh, jealousy now. The green monster's coming out and I want to chomp on. Hate that. Don't leave the church. It's immature and ungodly. If you have a good reason to leave your church, there, there are, and there are reasons, but, but because you had a breakup isn't a good one. As painful as it is, God would much rather you grow through the pain rather than escape it and try to leave it behind Please don't leave the church when the time comes. Instead, when you're breaking up with someone, give them the, the benefit of your honesty and your graciousness. Be clear about your intentions. Be honest about why you're breaking up. Be clear to them that you care about them and you're going to protect them even as you're breaking up with them. Be forgiving. If That probably is going to be the case. There's going to be situations that, where you've sinned against each other and that forgiveness is going to need to be extended, even if they don't ask for it. Jesus said to Peter, you're to forgive how many times? 70 times 7, which is to say infinity, infinity times. It's hard to, it's hard to say this in, in, in the midst of a breakup, but be thankful for it. Not like Ariana Grande thank, thankful. That's sinful thankful. But be thankful in a godly way, where you can look at the relationship and say, I'm so thankful for my... Okay, I'm quoting the song now. Um, I'm thankful for my relationship with this person because God, you grew me through this. There are, I know there's some parallels to the song, but she's on the opposite side of what I'm saying here. <laughs> you understand that? Uh, be thankful for what God has given you. Be thoughtful, learn from it. And here, eventually, be friends again. It may not be appropriate and, and helpful right away, but be friends eventually. And most importantly... Again, I, I, I talked about this danger last week, but I'm going to say it in a different way. You need to realize that your identity should not be found in the other person. Find your identity in Christ. It's such a helpful time to reflect upon your soul when you break up with someone, because then you feel alone. You feel like you're, you know, you, you've been abandoned. Okay, where am I with God now? Is my relationship with Christ strong enough to carry me through even this very painful, lonely situation? It should be. So when you date, if you're going to date in high school, be sexually pure. Honor the person that you're with. Esteem the church highly. Let the church be a part of your life. In fact, I forgot to say this, but when you start dating, I want to know who you're dating. I care about you. I pray for you. And I want to see them. I want to know who they are. And if some dude walks in with a leather jacket and is cussing at people, I'm going to say, Jaden, stop doing that. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to say, that's not a good guy to date. That's not a good guy to date. The guys that you're with, I, I want to know who they are. The girls that you're with, I want to know who they are. Not because I want to exert some kind of like tyrannical authority in life, but because I care. Yeah, I have stories about stuff like that where it's been helpful for me to see that because I've been able to identify issues in relationships because I've been, you know, been doing this for a little bit now. That's been a help. And your leaders want to see that too. Steam the church highly, break up amicably. Why? What's the whole purpose? What's this all about? Second Corinthians seven one. Why does it matter? Here's the big picture. Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What I want to focus on, so this is like a, the first verse, uh, do not be, uh, here, I think I have it here. No, I don't. Uh, the first verse, do not be unequally yoked. Everything else between that is like the meat. This is the sandwich. This is the other side of the bread. Since we have these promises, let us, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. So now you have the full picture. Don't be unequally yoked. Why? Because God has promised to be close to you. God has promised a close relationship. In fact, the promises that he's talking about is everything he said in the prior verses. 
Make his dwelling among you. Walk among you. He'll be your God. Uh, we'll be his people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate, says God, and I will welcome you as a father, as sons and daughters. All of those are the promises that Paul now says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us now cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion and fear of God. Why are you on this planet, young person? If you're a Christian, why are you here? In fact, why is everyone here? Why are you here on this planet? Glorify God. Remember your purpose. Even in your dating, your dating is all about magnifying the glory of God. Don't miss the forest for the trees. When you're dating, remember your purposes. First and foremost, again, we say glorifying God. Everything about your life is meant to glorify God. Your dating included. So one of the questions I asked two years ago in my first dating series here in True North was, does this person help me glorify God better? That's a great question. That's a great question that you should remember when you're dating somebody. Does this person help me glorify God better? That's the, that's the time to ask, not after you've married them and you're at the altar saying, I wonder if this person helps to glorify, glorify God better. No, not then. Ask now, in the, in the infancy of your time together, does this person help me glorify God better? Do I help them glorify God better? Purpose in dating is also growing in holiness. That person on the other side of you should be someone who's concerned about you being more like Christ. That person should care about your walk with God. And if they don't care about your walk with God, they probably don't care about their own walk with God. If they're honest about who they are before God and before you, this is going to be one of your focal points. Growing in holiness. One of the questions you can ask is, does this person help me grow in holiness? Do they care about my sanctification? Are they intent on growing together with me toward God? Or is it all about, let's play, let's have fun, let's go to the movies, let's do other things. Lastly, Purpose in dating is gauging for marriage. We talked about this at the beginning of the sermon, but really dating is meant to be a a testing ground uh, to see if it's a good launching pad for marriage. Ultimately, you want to see if they're a good fit. So guys, you're looking for a Proverbs 31 kind of girl. Proverbs 31, 11 through 10 through 31. 10 through 31. And here's the thing. uh, Young men, you should be looking for a girl that loves Christ more than she loves you. Proverbs 31 10 says, an excellent wife who can find you. She is far more precious than jewels. An excellent wife, a godly girl is more precious than anything else this life has to offer. She will either be your best friend or your worst enemy. Find a godly girl. Find someone who magnifies Christ, who esteems Jesus. And for, for, for guys, we need to have our minds calibrated to what God wants us to want. So, so many times we're attracted to the beautiful girl, but not the Proverbs 31 girl. Usually they're one and the same. In my mind, they're the same person. If you're attracted to a godly girl, the outside kind of just, it it all works together. Find a Proverbs 31 girl. Find someone who honors Christ more than you. Find someone who loves Jesus because she's the one who's going to submit to your godly leadership. Young ladies, is there a Proverbs 31 for girls? Not quite, except for Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Timothy 3. Last week we talked about Ephesians 5 and the kind of guy that you want to pursue. We also did, we didn't talk about this, but 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7 talk about a, a qualification for a godly man, aka a pastor. You're not marrying a pastor for the most part, but you want someone who's going to want to live up to the godly standards of Christ, which means you want to find a guy who's above reproach. Find a guy who's the husband of one wife, a one woman guy, not the kind of guy that's bouncing from girl to girl to girl to girl. Find someone who is sober minded. Can he play? Yes. He he plays Xbox, but he's not a fool. Find someone who's self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Find someone who's not a drunkard. He's not given over to to drinking or vaping all the time. He's not violent, but gentle. He's not quarrelsome. He's not a lover of money. He keeps uh, keeps his household under control, which he doesn't have a household right now, but he might have a room that he needs to keep under control. Someone doesn't know how to... uh, uh, He must not be a recent convert. That's a good one. We should... 
Not someone who's recently converted. That's always a good thing to think about. You don't want someone who's brand new in the faith and start dating them right away. They're not ready yet. Let them mature a little bit first. Girls, look for a 1 Timothy 3 and an Ephesians 5 kind of guy. Guys, look for a Proverbs 31 girl and marry them. Marry that person. Not right away. This whole series is really meant to prepare you for what's coming or what's already here for some of you. You guys, some of you are already dating. You're already into the game. Some of you are not yet there, and you, maybe you will be there soon enough. Well, why does this matter? It matters here and now, but I'm thinking much long-term here. A healthy church is only as strong as her families. The families are only as strong as her marriages. Marriages are only as strong as their walk with God is strong. I want you to go well-prepared into marriage because I'm looking forward to the future church, the church where all of you guys are serving and attending and being used for God's glory. You're going to be so much better together with the godly person when you're equally yoked with somebody. So these last four weeks have been all about preparing you for that, thinking through that and being wise about it. Please avoid the pain and the heartache of acting foolishly in high school relationships. Instead, be different. Embrace the different that God has called you to be and date in a way that honors God. In fact, this whole, this whole sermon is all, has been all about dating in a holy way. I want you to be wholly committed to holy dating. That's what this is all about. So with that said, if you have any questions or follow-ups to this, we still have the, the Instagram. We still have the question on the, on the homepage. Feel welcome to send in any others, and I'll do my best to get to as many of them as possible as quickly as possible. Let's pray.